Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Jim Jensen, a successful businessman and the author of an impressive new book, Beyond the Power of Your Subconscious Mind, based on the work of Dr. Joseph Murphy. Jim began his career as a salesman with Encyclopedia Britannica in his senior year of college. He quickly rose to international sales manager, and by the age of 28, he was senior vice president and CEO of Great Books of the Western World. In that same year, Jim attended a four-day seminar about the relationship between the conscious and subconscious mind that affected him deeply, and he became an avid student and ultimately a teacher of this work. Jim went on to become president and CEO of two additional companies that became leaders in their industries, and he attributes much of their success to the philosophies outlined in his book. Today, Jim provides executive coaching, consulting, and advisory services to emerging growth and mid-sized companies. He is also the CEO of American Global Health Group, an active member of the World President's Organization, and serves as a director on the boards of several companies and organizations, including the Institute of Noetic Sciences and Aspen University. Jim and his wife, Jerry, live in Seattle, Washington, so they're right up here in the Northwest, and I'm delighted to welcome him to New Consciousness Review. Hi, Jim. Good morning, Miriam. Good morning. Jim, your book is so filled with insight and life wisdom, I got even more out of it the second time I read it. It's it's a fine motivational psychology text, but it also has elements that might be considered mystical or spiritual. What did you have in mind when you were writing it? That's a good question, Miriam. I uh, didn't even know that Murphy had written the book, his original book, which was written in 1963. And I didn't have a copy of that book in my hands until the year 2005 and found that the teachings I had learned in the seminar that I went through in 1969, which was called Omega, that I subsequently uh, became an instructor for and actually owned the company. <clears throat> but all of those teachings were based on the principles of Dr. Murphy. And what it did for me was provide a kind of formula for how people behave, how they perform. In fact, when I give lectures, I oftentimes will tell the audience that I could just as easily have named the book The Qualities and Characteristics of High Performance People. And uh, so I think what I learned was really a toolkit to bring about change in our lives constructively, really in any area of our lives that we would desire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, on the back of your book, Jan Ca Jack Canfield, who wrote the Chicken Soup for the Soul series, um, leaves a testimonial. I have seldom read a book that so clearly leads, leaves the reader to better understand the incredible relationship between the conscious and subconscious areas of the mind. I highly recommend it. Now, you actually talk about three levels of the mind, Jim, the conscious, the subconscious, and the superconscious mind. So let's start with the first two. What are the functions of the conscious and subconscious minds? Good question. And I think the audience should understand these are not three different minds, but they are three spheres of one mind, of the same mind. 
The best way, and a very powerful metaphor that Dr. Murphy uses in his book to kind of distinguish between the conscious and the subconscious areas, is he says to visualize an ocean liner going across the sea and the captain uh, up on the bridge of the ship would be like the conscious area of the mind barking out commands to the crew, which might be down in the hold of the ship below the water level, which would be like the subconscious area of the mind. And he says, full speed ahead, port starboard, <clears throat> whatever, and the crew just says, aye, aye, sir, uh, carrying out the order, not minding whether it runs the ship into the rocks, into another vessel, or gets it safely to its, its destination. So the primary functions of the subconscious, in addition to taking care of all of our bodily functions, it digests our food and grows our hair and, and continues to grow our nails, and it works 24-7 taking care of our body. The other function of the subconscious is that it stores data. It's like the hard drive in a computer. And everything we've ever learned, done, experienced, and the feelings and emotions associated with those feelings are all stored in the subconscious. And the subconscious is like a servo mechanism that works on our behalf 24-7, carrying out what we instruct it with the conscious area of our mind to do. It's totally non-judgmental. It doesn't say, Miriam, are you sure you want to do this? Is this a good thing? It's a bad thing. It just says, like the captain on the ship, aye, aye, sir, and carries out the orders. So the conscious area of the mind is the one that's constantly chatting, constantly talking to ourselves. And, and the things that we say to ourselves become instructions to the subconscious. So we want to be very mindful, not so much just what we're saying to others or what others are saying to us, but what we are saying to ourselves. If we're constantly repeating, my business is falling apart, my marriage is failing, or things like that, even though that isn't what we want, or I don't have enough money or whatever, uh, remember it's like the crew saying, don't worry about it, we'll take care of it, we'll make sure those things happen. So I think it's important to distinguish that we don't get what we want. We get what we expect unless what we want and what we expect are the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is what you refer to in the book as self-talk. And in addition to determining our uh, reality, it also develops our self-concept. How does it do that? Okay, good question. And, and I think, so the audience, to clearly define self-talk, uh, while I'm talking right now and they're listening, uh, they are also uh, talking to themselves at the rate of 150 to 300 words a minute all day long, over 50,000 thoughts a day. So they can be assessing what I'm saying. They'll think, be thinking about other activities in their day and what they're going to do for dinner. and It's just a constant nonstop. Now, the self-talk that we have creates our self-concept. We come into the world as a totally empty vessel. We don't have a thought, opinion, an attitude, a belief about anything. But through well-intending parents, older siblings, teachers, coaches, people, they're important to us. By the time we're six years old, we have a pretty good idea of who we are, what we're good at, what we're not so good at, and we almost become like a robot and just continue to act that out. Because the 
self-talk, how we talk to ourselves about ourselves in any particular area of our life. We have hundreds of self-concepts, <clears throat> but the overall, overall self-concept is the way that we view ourselves. So if I have a low self-concept of myself, say, as a skier, my behavior will correspond consistent with my self-concept. Our self-concept, there's a one-to-one -one relationship between our self-concept and our level of performance in any area of our life. Uh, I use an example in the book that prior to 1954, uh, it was deemed among world-class runners that it would be impossible for man, in this case the male gender, to ever run a mile under four minutes. And in 1954, a young British medical student by the name of Dr. Roger Bannister was the first one to run a sub-four-minute mile. And our listeners might say, well, so what? Well, so what is that once the concept that it is impossible to run a mile in less than four minutes was shattered, in the next 24 months, 43 additional men uh, ran miles under four minutes. So the self-concept is can be the lid on the box that keeps us from becoming more of what in truth we fully we, we really are, and we just need to understand that the self-concept is developed by our own self-talk. So if we want to raise our self-concept in any area of our life, then we need to structure our own internal language to, to create a different picture than the one that previously may have been consistent in our minds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> You give the example of Tim Gal meeting Tim Galway and his work. He, he wrote the, the book, The Inner Game of Tennis. Um, I, I think that's a, a great illustration of what you're describing. Yes, Tim Galway is, is a brilliant, brilliant teacher and, and one of the great teachers in my life. And, uh, <clears throat> but his capacity to understand performance, uh, and understand really who we are at the at the end of the book. Uh, I can talk about that now or talk about that later. But it was it was uh, Tim's uh, answer to my question in 1974 when I asked him what is enlightenment. But maybe we'll we can we can discuss that later if you think it's relevant. Okay. Okay. Or now we also uh, talk, acquire our belief systems, and you've you've already touched on this, but. It's really an important point how um, our belief systems kind of get soaked into our subconscious through our teachers, through our friends, and, you know, through, uh, it could be momentary traumas, momentary experiences. I know my husband, who is a hypnotherapist, is dealing with the aftermath of this every day in his practice. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. Uh, <clears throat> you know, first we form habits, then they form us. And again, I think it's important for us to realize that we didn't come into the world with any habits, any attitudes, any beliefs about anything. So uh, how often, I mean, if people don't know how to change, uh, then they just kind of go through life describing themselves as they've always been. And they keep repeating uh, performance consistent again with their self-concept. Uh, so it's only once one comes to the realization that they don't have to continuously believe in a certain thing 
and they take time out and say, I'm going to go take personal inventory. You know, what, what are the beliefs that I have today? What are all the, what's all the data in my hard drive, in my subconscious, and, and what in there may no longer be relevant to the way that I choose to live my life today? You know, uh, in our home, we throw the garbage out every day. Uh, what is the process that we use to eliminate what we call baggage or some outdated beliefs or opinions or even erroneous data uh, that no longer serves us well? Mm-hmm. And, and that's what the book is all about <clears throat> in providing step-by-step procedures on how to revise uh, the data in our hard drive, in our subconscious, that may no longer be relevant to how we choose to live our lives. Well, as you say, some of these um, programs that we run are necessary to efficient functioning. I mean, we, we, we don't want to have to think of every single step of how to drive a car. Uh, yeah. that, that kind of gets internalized and it just goes on automatic pilot. But this works um, both for our benefit and sometimes our automatic programs get triggered um, and we get a panic attack or or uh, angry for no for ostensibly no reason because we're running old programs. The question is, how do we determine which are beneficial and which are negative? Well, I think we, we want to first define uh, let's let's assume that we drew a picture of how we really wanted our life to be and how we really wanted it to look. And then we might say, okay, uh, if one believes that we have the power and the capacity to grow into that picture, what might be some of the stumbling blocks in our database that may sabotage our success from achieving what we really want? And And is it possible that we have you know, outdated information that simply gets in the way of our growing. And, and when we identify that, uh, you know, we, we can, we don't have a thought for it. I mean, how many people that vote Republican, probably their parents were Republican or Democrat, Democrat. Uh, most people, if they're raised Catholic, their parents were Catholic and, and, and making no judgments at all or Protestants or whatever. Uh, but that also carries over to, the other attitudes and beliefs that we have, again, given to us by well-intending parents, but for the most part, you know, who inherited it from their parents. I just read J.D. Messenger's new book, uh, 12, 11 Days in May, and there's a cute story in there in which a lady is visiting a friend and they're making a pot roast, and she notices that the friend, before she puts the, the uh, roast in the pot, she cuts off uh, some good ends of meat and discards them before she puts the the roast in the pot. You're throwing that good meat away. She says, well, that's the way that I was trained to do this. My mother always did it this way. Gossity, they call mom and say, mom, why, why was it that you trained me to cut the ends of the meat off every time, you know, we make a pot roast? And she says, well, you'll have to call your grandmother and ask her. So they call the grandmother and the grandmother says, well, it's very simple. She says, my pot was too small to get the roast in, so I had to cut them off. <laughs> so, so here became a conditioned response that was passed on generationally with no thought about why they did it, very practical reason why grandma did it. But now she has a pot, you know, could put two roasts in there 
but it was conditioned to cut the ends off and thinking that was the way you had to make a pot roast. So I think that's a very non-threatening analogy of how information gets handed to us generationally, uh, you know, and, and, you know, is that really relevant today? You know, do you really need to cut the ends off? off the roast, right? Well, I, I think what you're doing is you're calling for us to be reflective about our thoughts and our actions. So let's say that we realize that we have a response that's not serving us any longer. How do we best reprogram the subconscious mind? Well, we reprogram it the same way it originally got programmed. And Miriam, I start, you know, the number one affirmation that we teach and I love is, is I love myself unconditionally. That's a strong word, unconditionally. So we don't want to beat ourselves up or feel bad if we have some outdated or erroneous data. We just kind of acknowledge it and say, you know, that's kind of foolish. I don't know where all that got in there, but I want to change it. Well, the way it got in there was that we were told, uh, you got to remember when we're little kids, we live in a land of giants and we see these great big people called adults. And whatever they tell us, we kind of accept literally. Well, you know, they have to, that has to be that way, you know, because these people are perfect that are telling me this. <clears throat> so we, we get a lot of uh, early data, uh, some of which, again, the example of the rose may have been handed down from, you know, generationally, that may no longer be relevant to how the world is in the year 2013. And, and so the way that that got in there, was our talking to ourselves, not what mom or dad said, but what we said with our own self-talk. Their language did not record in our subconscious. What recorded was us interpreting that language mm -hmm. and how we interpreted and what we said to our own subconscious. So when we repeated that data, repeated that data, repeated that data, I guess I'm just not good in math. I'm not good in math. I'm not good in math. Don't worry, we'll take care of it, we'll make sure you don't do well in math. This is the subconscious. Now, when you realize that, that you have the, all the capacity in the world, if you want to, to become an efficient, let's say, student of math, not necessarily an Einstein, but if that's necessary, say, for your career or for whatever you're doing to enhance or increase your math skills or skills or any, in any area of your life, and you might have previously had a blockage or some erroneous data describing yourself as uh, not being, you know, competent in a particular area, you just say cancel. The next time you find yourself saying, <clears throat> you know, I've never done well in math, you just say, wait a minute, time out, cancel. You know, I didn't used to do well in math, but the truth is that I am actually very competent in math, and my math skills are getting better and better every day. So we put in new data. Mm -hmm. that contradicts the old data, and as we continue to input that new data, there's a tipping point at which the subconscious now has a new set of instructions and then carries out those new sets of instructions. Mm -hmm. Now, in your, your three, you, you actually have three steps in your affirmation process, and you include imagery and emotion. Why? do they have such a powerful effect? Hmm. Marion, that is a great question because I know a lot of people are familiar with the process of affirmations, and I've asked countless people, tell me about how you do affirmations, and many people just have written statements about describing themselves as they want to become or a new goal they want to achieve, and then they just read those statements to themselves 
But without imagery and without emotion, it's ineffective. Because the purpose of language is to create an image or a picture that is, is consistent with that language. Because what records in the subconscious are not the words, but what records are the pictures and the emotions associated with those words. Mm-hmm. So if I had a goal, let's say, to change my weight, and maybe I had put on a few pounds and was weighing 220, and the doctor suggested I might want to lose 25 pounds, and I agreed that would be a good idea, you know, I wouldn't have an affirmation that I'm not overweight, because the emphasis there is on overweight, but I might create an affirmation that would say, <clears throat> the words would say, I look good and feel good at 195 pounds. Now, I don't stop there. I shut my eyes, I say that to myself, I look good and feel good at 195 pounds, and I see myself in that new suit. And I'm walking into the office and people are complimenting me about how good I look having lost all that weight, and just then I feel the emotion associated with that picture. So the emotion is kind of what juices the whole affirmation process. And this has, been, this has been proven scientifically. There's a neurologist in Montreal, Canada, Dr. Wilder Penfield, who will take subjects and, and put them you know, under anesthetic, but they're still awake. And he'll remove a portion of the skull over the area of the brain that stores memory. And if he probes into there, the subject may recite something that's happening you know, 25 years ago, and if it's a happy event, they'd be laughing and describing it in great visual detail. And if it's a sad event, they could be crying. He can remove the probe, put it in exactly the same place, which would like be pushing the the rewind button, and the subject will recite again uh, that same experience. So so the you, you asked a very, very important question, Miriam, and that is that affirmations to be effective and to work must be supported with the visual imagery that supports the affirmation statement itself and then the emotion that we feel that's associated with that picture. And thank you for asking that question. Another thing that's so critical to our performance in life is self-esteem. What did Lee Poulos mean, who Lee is a contributor to your book, uh, what did he mean when he said self-esteem is an inside job? Well, uh, self-esteem is, again, how we feel about ourselves. And, and Lee said that, uh, as told me consistently, as a clinical, cl- clinical psychologist, I think your husband would find the same thing, that 95% of the people that he sees, uh, regardless of what they're stating are the problems in their lives, they have to do with, you know, a self-esteem issue, or let's say what we would call <clears throat> a low self-worth, a, a low opinion of themselves. Uh, and not just generally, but maybe in a particular area of their life. It could be, for example, in relationships. You know, why do I always have trouble with people and, you know, I have problems at work and my marriage is falling apart and, you know, whatever. I mean, people that tend to have problems in relationships continue to have problems in relationships. Well, they, in that area of their life, they have a low self-esteem. They don't feel worthy, perhaps, of having good relationships. They just kind of think, well, that's, that's the card I dealt, and I guess I'm not supposed to have good relationships. And, and, but it's, it's a self-esteem issue. 
So again, after we continue to identify how we want to grow in these areas, uh, we can, you know, continue to improve our self-esteem. And again, the first affirmation, uh, I love myself unconditionally, is an incredibly powerful affirmation to increase and improve self-esteem. And I think this ties back into what you were saying about imagery and emotion, because you actually have to feel loved. You have to, you, you know, just kind of have that internalization. Uh, so many of us try to use our conscious minds to kind of bludgeon our way forward through life. And unless you internalize these feelings, you're, you're kind of self-sabotaging every step of the way. Oh, dear. You know, you, you, you've triggered a thought, Marion, uh, and that is that, that a lot of people have a problem with the infinitive or the verb to be and problem with time. And the only time there is, is now. There was a past. There may be a future, but when the future comes, when will it be? It will be now. But a lot of people uh, spend a lot of their nowness time regretting something that happened in the past or feeling bad about something that happened years ago that they can no longer change, or they worry about something that may or may not happen in the future. In the book, we use an acronym for fear, F-E-A-R, false expectations appearing real. And high-performance people have a capacity to spend the bulk of their thinking time in the present, right now. You know, Eckhart Tolle wrote a whole book about this called The Power of Now, and I reference uh, Tolle in my book. And, and uh, so it, it, people, again, that have self-esteem issues are not here now. They're they're lamenting something that happened years ago or they're worried about something in the future and they just cheat themselves out of the opportunity to be here now and enjoy the moment. That is so important. I hope people take that to heart. Um, where did the notion, excuse me, of the supra-conscious mind come from? That has evolved since Murphy wrote his original work in 1963. And the superconscious is the third area of the mind, uh, which is where we really get uh, pure creativity. It's where things come to us that may be beyond that data that is stored in our subconscious mind. Sometimes we'll get a creative solution to something and we go, wow, I got it. And somebody says, how'd you get it? I say, it just came to me, you know, out of the blue. We didn't say it came from me. We say it came to me. So now, again, through science, uh, much of which we study at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, uh, we are able to identify how this process works. Willis Harmon, Ph.D., wrote a terrific book on the superconscious called Higher Creativity. And one of the things he says in that book, which is a prelude to my chapter on the superconscious, he says the most essential part of the self is the supraconscious, not ordinarily accessible to conscious awareness. Access to the supraconscious may be enhanced 
by meditative disciplines, life crises, attitudes, for example, non-attachment, auto-suggestion approaches, rituals, etc. So, um, for example, Mozart said to people, and especially fellow musicians, he says, you know, I, I'm not a composer. Everybody thinks I'm a composer. But what Mozart did was he would hear music through his inner ear, and he would write down the string section, then he'd write down the brass section, and then he'd write down the percussion. And when he got through, the entire score was perfect for no need of revision or editing. And, you know, they thought he was a phony. In fact, if you recall the movie Amadeus, it was a movie that tried to debunk Mozart because other uh, people that really efforted at trying to compose music said nobody could do that that way. Robert Louis Stevenson would go to bed at night, and before he would go to bed, he would talk to his superconscious, and he would say, uh, please, I'd like a complete chapter, new ch next chapter in my book in the morning. He would wake up in the morning, he would take a pen and a pad, and his hand would just fly across the paper, and it was almost like what we would call automatic writing. And when he would get through, here would be the next chapter in its entirety. Again, no need for revision. And he would jokingly say to people, the brownies uh, come in my sleep and provide this data. Well, once we understand, I mean, I have a whole chapter 13 on the superconscious, and I outline the functions and characteristics of the superconscious. And then we uh, provide a five-step process that people can use to access the superconscious to help them in creative problem solving when they've no longer been able to, to solve a particular problem through the conscious process. And it's extremely, extremely powerful. Uh, we all have this superconscious. That I'll give the audience a, an example of this. One of the functions of the superconscious is it monitors all of our functions. So it contains a monitoring system. Well, how many of us have maybe going to be going on a vacation and, and where we normally get up at, at 6 in the morning, we might then at, that next morning be getting up at 4 in the morning to get an early flight. Uh, it's really important, you know, that we get up early and we don't necessarily go to bed earlier. We might go to bed later because we're doing last-minute packing or whatever. So we set our alarm clock and for fear that we might, you know, uh, oversleep, we call the friend we're traveling with and ask if she or he would, you know, please give us a call at 4 o'clock. So we could be in a dead sleep, and we have told our superconscious, not knowingly, but it is so, so important that I wake up at 4 o'clock. And we're sound asleep. The room is completely dark, and we wake up with a start. And we look over at the digital clock, and as we're looking at the clock, it says 3.59, and the number is just rolling to 4. <laughs> at that moment, the alarm goes off, but it wasn't the alarm that woke us. Mm -hmm. At that moment, the phone rings. You know, what woke us up? It was the supraconscious, which controls all of our monitoring functions. And well, I doubt if like there's anybody listening to this show that has not had that experience. Yeah, it sounds very similar to the subconscious. I mean, how, how are they related? How are they different? The, the, the subconscious um, stores data. Again, it's like our hard drive. And when we try to solve a problem, the first thing we need to do is consciously define the problem so we're clear on what the definition of the problem is. Step two is we gather data. Where do we gather the data? From either our, our own subconscious 
or through the internet or we Google or the experts or consultants or whatever. And then three, we try to solve the problem consciously. 90% of our problems will be solved with those three step, that three-step process. If we are unable to solve the problem at the conscious level, the, the fourth step is we turn the problem over to the superconscious and we say, hey, superconscious, I've worked long enough. And when do we do that? We do that when we find ourselves starting to repeat uh, possible solutions that are not the solution that we need to the problem. So we turn the problem over to the superconscious. And the superconscious, Miriam, uh, it's what you know Carl Jung might have referred to as the collective unconscious. It's, it's that field of knowledge that we would call universal knowledge in which we, uh, when we're tuned into things, have the capacity to receive data that's in a universal pool of knowledge that is not otherwise stored in our own subconscious. So the difference is that we access information, we transcend the data that is stored in our subconscious, and we deliberately provide access to higher consciousness and it's it's uh, it's there it's it works and it's it's sometimes difficult to explain but that that is what it is and that's how it works well it's kind of the tom sawyer of consciousness um dr murphy writes that one's subconscious processes are always lifeward and constructive and always trying to preserve us from harm now is that really the case I mean, you see a lot of yeah, self-destructive at the, at the behavior. Physical level, at the physical level, our subconscious is very life-word driven and is always repairing things. I mean, it's, if we break a leg and the doctor sets the bones, I mean, it will go to work and, and uh, you know, repair the bone that grows back together. It uh, replaces skin if we've been cut or, you know. So, so the natural intuitive instinct of the subconscious is life word. But that is, uh, here's, here's the delta. I understand, I think, your question. That's what pertains to the physical body. But in terms of behavior, it is our servo mechanism and loves us unconditionally. So when we ask it to do something by how we are talking to ourselves, it will carry that out again unconditionally and non-judgmentally, even though it may not be the best thing for us. But we apparently think it is because that's what we're saying to ourselves. So um, I think that's the difference, that, that, that in terms of behavior, it responds to the software programs that we provide. And the software programs are what we create with our own self-taught. In terms of our bodily functions, uh, we go to sleep at night and we don't have a lot of control over, you know, what's growing on, going on in our body and what's regrowing, what's happening, what's healing, and it is constantly uh, in a physical healing modality. I think that's what Dr. Murphy means by it is really life word in what it does. Well, now we're getting into a rather interesting area because the book states that according to science, we rebuild our entire body every 11 months. And yet, you still have the phenomenon of chronic illness. So how do we explain the body trying to do its best for us, still recreating these patterns of chronic illness instead of uh, going on to full healing? 
Well, let me make a disclaimer. Of course, I'm not a medical doctor. But I, will tell you, I will tell you a story that is a true story. Um, I was teaching an Omega seminar uh, years ago, maybe 30 years ago, and there was a couple in our class. We always had couples that would come through. There were usually maybe 60 to 80 people, and, but there were always people attending who had been through the seminar before. And when they came back, we called them retreads. Uh, uh, you know, affectionately. And the reason they would come back again is because the information was working so well in their lives that they wanted to come back and have a refresher course. So they would, they would always give these great testimonials of, of how well things were working, which would support the first-time audience, you know, that this stuff was real stuff. And there was a, a man who stood up and volunteered and told the audience that every June, he and all members of his family always got a common cold. And so the question I asked was, well, would you like to continue to have a common cold every June? Because you just made an affirmation. You said every June, every member of our family always gets a common cold. That is an affirmation. So I think he got intellectually that, in, that affirmations were working. He made a decision to try to change the language. He did change the language. I got a letter two years later saying, Jim, I'm happy to report that not one member of our family has had a common cold, not only in June, since we attended the seminar last October, but this was two years later. He said, he said we haven't had a common cold in any month ever since we attended the seminar. So here, and they, they live in the same house, the same city, the same weather patterns, the same whatever. So what caused them to have this quote chronic condition, uh, a very strong belief system. And when they change, I mean, when people want to get into the whole realm of healing and, 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 and what we call miracle healing, I mean, what really causes these miracle healings? So oftentimes it's a change in our mindset. And again, I need to make a disclaimer. I'm not a physician. I'm not telling anybody to not see, see, seek a physician if they need that help. But isn't that an interesting story? Yes, and I mean, another question, interesting... How, how much, the question is how much which is chronic is really in our mind, or is it something that genetically we may have been born with that is just the way it is? I, you know, I, I don't well, this whole area of healing is fascinating uh, because we do have the placebo effect and we do have spiritual healing that can be very effective. And we also have um, a story like what you described in your book where you came down with mononucleosis. I'd love for you to tell that story. Well, I will. In 1981, we were living in Sun Valley, Idaho. And I'm happy to say even today at age 72, neither my wife nor I are on any medications. And we eat well and take good care of ourselves and knock on wood. We, well, we just have a high self-concept, I guess, related to our physical bodies and our well-being. And we were living in Sun Valley, and we, we were getting ready to move back to Seattle. And I had just been feeling really crummy, and that was so unlike me. And I was, had a sore throat and a fever and whatever, and I called a doctor friend of mine who I skied with, and he said to come over to the hospital. And he looked at me and drew some blood and said, Jim, you have an acute, acute case of mononucleosis. And I said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, first of all, I want to admit you to the hospital. We need to give you some intravenous. We need to do this. We need to do whatever. And I said, I agreed to do that. 
And I said, how long will it be? You know, how long does this thing last? He said, well, it could be a couple of months. I said, well, that's unacceptable. And he kind of looked at me and said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I'm starting a new job in Seattle. I was becoming the chairman and CEO of a company in Seattle. We were about to relocate in two weeks. And I said, so I can't accept this. And he kind of laughed. He says, well, Jim, I, I love your positive attitude and everything, but you need to understand. And then he went on and gave me all the reasons why this was going to last for a couple of months. Well, he had his timetable, and, and I had mine, and uh, that night, uh, I had been meditating at that point for about seven years, and that night I went into a very, very, very deep meditative state, and I just visualized through my third eye, you know, up in the, you know, the crown, crown I visualized this white light energy coming into my body, and I just visualized it flowing down through my body and zapping any uh, unhealthy cells and replacing that with white light, pure energy, pure life. And I'd go all the way down my entire body. And I did that for eight hours nonstop. I've never had an experience before then or since then like that. I never went to sleep in the morning when i woke up i when i excuse me when i was ready to get out of bed i hadn't been asleep but when i came out of the trance i called my wife and asked if she would please bring my running shoes and my running shorts to the hospital so i asked the nurse on duty if she'd please re take out the tubes in my arms and she said well she couldn't do that without the doctor's approval and the on-duty doctor, who was not my doctor, came by and said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I'm going to go for a run. And he kind of laughed. He said, you wouldn't get to the front door. I said, well, I'm willing to sign whatever, but that's what I'd like you to do is to remove everything, and I will accept responsibility for that. And they did. And and uh, my wife showed up, and, and I, the doctor was right. I didn't make it to the front door, but I made it eight miles. And I ran what in, what in Sun Valley is called the loop. And I ran it like a deer. And when I got back, my primary physician was there, and he just kind of looked at me and shook his head and said, you're crazy. And I said, well, I don't have mononucleosis anymore, so I feel great. In fact, I'd like you to, for your comfort, draw my blood, which he did. Called me, you know, an hour later and asked if I would come back for another blood draw. And, and I said, yeah, because you didn't find any, you know, <laughs> uh, mononucleosis. And... Uh, he just kind of shook his head and there wasn't any. So that was that. So, Well, I think all of these uh, stories and, and anecdotes relate to the incredible power of our belief system as it's ex expressed in our subconscious mind, in our conscious mind, in our superconscious mind. And I... It really advise our listeners to read the book because there is such a wealth of anecdotes and applications and, and processes to kind of gently bring you into this notion of the power that we have to create and recreate our own reality. Um, and yet there, there, there are caveats like, Jim, tell us what the law of reverse effect is. Or reversed effort, I think you call it. Well, uh, that uh, one of the things that Tim Galway always used to say to me was that trying 
oftentimes interferes with performance. <laughs> so he says, don't you know, try to make it happen. He says, let it happen. And so when we have success with these processes, as we develop success, we, we trust more and more. We know that they work. We know that they are uh, actually universal laws that are real scientific laws that work. And once we surrender to that knowledge and that process, uh, we, we can reverse the efforting that we may have embraced for so many years and life becomes just lighter. And, you know, uh, another thing Galway said, which I, I'd like to, to leave the readers with this thought, he said in response to my question, what is enlightenment? And he said, most people go through life and that to them growth is always a process of addition that if they're here, then they want to be here. Once they get here, they really want to be here. So the first car may be a Volkswagen, but then it's really the Chevrolet that they want, and then it's the Cadillac. He said, as long as people are always looking out there to make them happy in here, they'll never experience you know, total happiness. They'll experience moments of contentment. But he said, the enlightened individual is that person that comes at some point in their life to the realization that wrapped up in this piece of skin that we call us already exists total knowledge, total beauty, total truth, total wisdom, total intelligence. And to become more of that which in truth we really are requires an ability to become less of that which we think we are. So to the enlightened individual then, growth becomes a process of subtraction. It becomes a process of taking away from, which we've been talking about, you know, the outdated beliefs and things that, you know, are no longer serving us well. The Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu says, in the pursuit of knowledge, something is added every day. In the pursuit of enlightenment, something is dropped every day. So uh, I love your audience unconditionally. I see their absolute complete perfection in every state of their life. And I love Tim's explanation to me that growth become to the enlightened individual, growth becomes a process of subtraction. Hmm. There's so much that we could still discuss. I, I was so impressed with one paragraph because we were just talking about love. And this is such a loaded word. Um, and we tend to think of it reflexively. What you say, I, 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 have to, I have to read this quote for our listeners. You say that love includes understanding, goodwill, and respect for the other person. The more love and goodwill you emanate and exude, the more comes back to you. If you puncture the other fellow's ego and wound his estimate of himself, you cannot gain his goodwill. Recognize that every person wants to be loved and appreciated and made to feel important in the world. Realize that the other person is conscious of their worth and that, like yourself, feels the dignity of being an expression of the one life principle animating all people. As you do this consciously consciously and knowingly, you build the other person up and your love and goodwill are returned to you. I have the feeling that if we could teach these ideas in schools and colleges, we would soon have world peace. Um, I think it's, it's a perfect platform for a management institute. Anyway. Well, yes, I, I agree, and that, that's, that's a goal of mine is to 
contribute in any way that I can. But I think of love as like a boomerang. And the greater the energy and the velocity at which we throw it out, the greater is the velocity and the speed that it comes back to us. If we just wimp it out, you know, it may not even come back to us at all. But if we really thrust it out, it comes back in great speed. So that's why the third basic affirmation, these are all in the back of the book, is uh, I have unconditional warm regards for all people at all times. Mm-hmm. And and uh, so, I mean, human relations is such an important thing. And don't you find that, that what really makes you, I mean, like doing your program, don't you just really feel good when you know you've really done something to make somebody else feel good about themselves? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, Neil Donald Walsh, and I talk about this in the book, says that all, he wrote the book Conversations with God, and he says all emotions emanate from one of two poles, either love or fear. So we are emotionally either vibrating in that energy field of love or in that field of fear. For example, all anger is symptomatic of fear. Why are we angry? Because we're afraid we're going to lose a loved one or a relationship or get fired or, you know, why? I mean, it's so powerful. So it is a continuous daily process that we grow in this area and something that I work on every day and, and, uh, uh, I, I think you, you've really you've picked a wonderful paragraph to uh, bring toward the end of our, our conversation here. I'm very impressed with that, Marion. Thank you. Well, I wanted to uh, ask you about your website. I understand you have videos on your website that really go into more depth in different areas of the book. We, we've only had a chance to just touch on the tip of the iceberg here. What's your, what's your website, Jim? The website, uh, thank you, Miriam, is www.beyondthepower.com, www.beyondthepower.com, and I have 12 video vignettes there that are three to five minutes. They're short. I mean, one, for example, is on self-talk, which we just talked about. One is on the superconscious, the question you asked about. So there's more detail there than maybe what we would have had time to have discussed in our time together today. But I invite the, uh, the audience to browse through that, and uh, I think they'll find some things that uh, might be of help and benefit and could influence their decision whether they want to get the book and see what we've written about here. Well, thank you, Jim. Uh, I'm afraid our time is up, and I commend your book, Beyond the Power of Your Subconscious Mind, by C. James Jensen. Um, and I want to thank you for joining us today. Marion, it was my pleasure, and I want to tell the audience out there of my unconditional love for all of them. So uh, namaste, and everybody have a great day and, and a great life, and let's make it a wonderful place to be. Thank you. Our guest next week is Dr. Dane here discussing his book, Being You, Changing the World, a most intriguing book. And now we're going to close with our track of the week, Just for One More Day by Kathy DeWitt. Keep
That was Just for One More Day by award-winning jazz composer and songwriter Kathy DeWitt from Gainesville, Florida. Kathy is the music director at Unity of Gainesville, and she created a pioneering music and medicine program to transform the hospital environment and the patient experience. Her website is kathydewitt.com. That's C-A-T-H-Y-D-E-W-I-T-T dot com. Well, that's our show, and I'm so glad you could join us. Until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review, Media for Enlightened Living at www.ncreview.com. Have a wonderful week. Goodbye.